This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. <clears throat> this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Frog in my throat. Anyway, it's great to be with you. Lots to talk about today. We have this um, so-called bombing mission, retaliation mission, which doesn't look like much to me. We got some interesting economic news, so we'll cover it all. I just want to start out. Uh, you can get us on the internet, live stream us, live stream this radio show on the internet, LarryCudlowShow dot com, LarryCudlowShow dot com, and uh, we run all around the country, around the world, throughout the solar system, and that includes the Milky Way. Special heads up to the Milky Way today and during the week. Fox Business Network, FBN, the name of the show is Kudlow. Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, 4 to 5 p.m. And uh, if you can't get us at 4, you can text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. You could also catch a rerun at 7. So let's dive in, talk about this um, so-called retaliation this is the most telegraphed retaliation slash war slash I don't know what I've ever seen. And I'm interested to see that the number of people are making this case. I mean, for one thing, I just want to make this point. I made it on the TV show pretty much every day this past week. It took us six days to do it. And we did it finally a couple hours after the transfer ceremony in Delaware for the poor souls, the patriots, the American service members, two young women, 23 years old, 24 years old, and uh, a fellow sergeant, 46 years old. They were killed in the uh, Iranian-sponsored blasts at, uh, what was it, Tower 22, which was about the 165th attack on U.S. military assets, about which we did virtually nothing. So God bless those young patriots. It's it's heart-wrenching to see that. It's a beautiful ceremony, the transfer ceremony. Biden waited until... After that, didn't say anything to the country, didn't set it up, issued a statement, didn't face the camera and broadcast the way he should have. And he waited too long. He waited too long. And in those days he waited, 
Lloyd Austin, his Secretary of Defense, and John Kirby, the NSC spokesman, they they just talked about talk talk and talk and talk alerted the enemy. So I'm going to guess. No, we'll know more. We have, by the way, former National Security Advisor General Keith Kellogg and former Defense uh, Official Cash Patel. They're going to come on at the half hour. But I'm going to guess any self-respecting terrorist probably left Dodge. Dodge being these outposts in Syria and Iraq that were hit uh, part of the 85 targets that included allegedly command and control centers and uh, rockets, uh, missiles, storage facilities. And remember this, too. Not only these uh, Russian, Russian, Iranian, might be well Russian, but not only these Iranian-backed militias, but also their Iranian advisors who were there Make no mistake about that. I mean, Iran is the mothership here, right? Iran is the puppeteer. Iran is the paymaster. Iran is the trainer. So whatever these Iranian installations have, you can bet there were Iranian advisors, probably hundreds of them. And you can bet as Lloyd Austin and Kirby and Biden kept warning about this, that they got out. They left. They went back to Iran. Why did they go to Iran? Because our government made it clear we wouldn't hit Iran. And therein lies another problem. We are still appeasing Iran. Biden is still more afraid of Iran than Iran is afraid of us. That's a bad spot to be in. That's a bad position to be in. Very bad position to be in. And meanwhile, we have waited basically three years to change this Iranian policy. Stop this appeasement. Bad enough they waited six days. But they relaxed the economic sanctions on oil and other forms of commerce that were laid down by the Trump administration and were effective. And Trump took no prisoners on that. You remember he had... uh, uh, Soleimani, the head terror warrior, he had him taken out in early 2020. He and his driver. And enforced all of the economic and oil and banking and commercial sanctions. So Iran was broke. In comes the Biden administration, and they pick up where Barack Obama left off which is to try to make a nuclear deal with Iran, to coddle Iran, to enable Iran, to appease Iran, to relax or end the sanctions. Look, 
China is financing this war by purchasing Iranian oil, which is now up to about three and a half million barrels a day. It had been as low as one million barrels a day or less three, four years ago. And by the way, financing it, you know, 80 to to $100 a barrel. Now, I'm sure they gave them a discount, but still, it wasn't 30 or $40 a barrel. And so Iran accumulates a very nice foreign exchange reserve position, probably something like $80 billion up from 3 or $4 billion. In other words, Iran was broke because of Trump's sanctions. And as the sanctions were lifted and or relaxed, Iran suddenly got rich again. So what did they do? They poured the money into terrorism, in Hamas, in Hezbollah, in Islamic uh, Revolution, in all the in the Houthis, in all these punk terrorist operations, punk terrorists. Hate Israel, hate America, hate Christianity, hate Judaism. Anyway. I don't see how these 85 uh, bombing sorties, I mean, maybe they took out some of these distant militia headquarters. Yes, I have no doubt. We knocked out a lot of concrete and we pounded a lot of sand. Did we get any of the Iranian advisors? I doubt it. Did we get many of the terrorists? I mean, somebody's going to have to do an assessment of this. We'll wait in the day's head. And then, of course, they're saying, well, you know, we're not over. It's going to be a multi-tiered operation. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. We're going to warn them every time. We warned Iran ahead of time. Why would we warn it? Why? Because you know what? The Bidens don't see Iran as the enemy. That there's a big problem. All the good that Donald Trump did with the Abraham Accords with pushing Iran down toward bankruptcy, with closing their, muzzling their weaponry, all the good that was done has been undone by Biden. And it's the same crowd that did this under Barack Obama, same crowd. Peacenik left wing of the Democratic Party. That's all it is, the peaceniks. Human rights, human rights, wait a minute. These terrorists are the worst abusers of human rights and uh, imaginable, such as what happened on October 7th in Israel. Hamas, Iran backed. Don't forget that. So, as many observed and many argued, many military experts, did the United States bomb Iranian oil fields? No. Did the United States bomb Iranian offshore drilling operations? No. Did the United States bomb command and control centers in Iran? No. Did Iran bomb, did the United States bomb training centers in inside Iran? No. Did Iranian officers and advisors have plenty of time to escape Syria and Iraq? Yes. So I ask, what good did this do? Am I being too hard? I don't think so. Maybe the next round will hit Iran. I don't know. Thus far, everything points to no. 
you know, you could go back, take this story back. I don't know, a couple of weeks, a month ago. They had the, uh, what, the third anniversary. It was a memorial service in Iran for this uh, Soleimani criminal that Trump took out. And uh, some ISIS terrorists, ISIS-K terrorists, I think based in Syria. Anyway, they, they blew up the ceremony. A lot of people were killed and injured. And these reports were that the United States intelligence agencies got wind of this and warned Iran. Really? Warned Iran? Did we warn Iran again? Of course we did. Did we say we're not going to hit Iran because we don't want escalation? Of course we did. So we took out a lot of cement in Syria and Iraq, but I don't know if it did any good at all. We won't know. Is there is this deterrence? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, look, everybody likes restraint. Nobody's. I'm not. A, I'm not for breaking war out everywhere. But Iran, what they've done killing these three American soldiers. By the way, two Navy SEALs disappeared into, I think, the Red Sea over uh, a Houthi attack. Dozens and dozens of Americans were injured uh, from the uh, militia attacks. 165 some odd attacks on American military assets. We didn't do anything. We waited until this, and what is this? What is it? It says the U.S. doesn't want to do much damage to these militias because the U.S. fears escalation, which is another way of saying the U.S. fears Iran, which is another way of saying the Biden administration is setting back American foreign policy decades. This story will not be solved until Mr. Biden is retired and Donald Trump becomes president again, okay? That is my view. Some of you may agree with it, some of you may not. But that is my view. You can't reason with these people. They do everything wrong all the time. Retire Mr. Biden. Don't hurt him, just retire him. And put a tough guy in the White House like Donald Trump who understands power politics both at home and abroad. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show on 77 WABC. Now back to the Larry Kudlow Show. On this uh, business of the uh, bombing of the Iranian-backed militias yesterday. 85 targets, three facilities in Iraq, four in Syria, command and control headquarters, ammunition storage, presumably rocket launchers, and other facilities. John Kirby, the National Security Council spokesman, says, the strikes were not intended to spark a conflict with Iran. What? 
We already have a conflict with Iran. You know, Biden and uh, Austin, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, they keep saying that we're not at war with Iran. Yes, we are. They're at war with us. They're at war with Israel. They've talked about being at war and wiping out the United States for years. Why don't these people listen? We're not at war with Iran. Yes, we are. And we're letting them get away literally with bloody murder. Strikes were not intended to spark a conflict with Iran, who backs the groups that have targeted U.S. troops in the region over 160 times since October before killing three and injuring dozens this past week. This is Kirby. We do not seek a conflict with Iran. These targets were chosen, as we said, to degrade and disrupt the capabilities of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the groups that they sponsor. Who do you think? Who is the Iranian rebel? The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is Iran. Sponsored and trained and financed by the Quds, which is Iran. The horrific Hamas slaughtering of Israel on October 7th. Hamas sponsored, trained, financed by Iran. The Islamic Jihad in Lebanon sponsored, financed by Iran. The Houthis sponsored and financed by Iran. You think they're not at war with us? When will the Bidens wake up? and realize we are at war with Iran. This shouldn't be so hard, but it is. We're going to take a quick break. General Keith Kellogg and uh, former defense advisor Cash Patel come on at the half hour. We're going to talk some more. These two guys have been through several wars themselves. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you. We're talking about the uh, U.S.-Iranian war that the U.S. Uh, administration, the Bidens, don't acknowledge, but there is a war going on. We're going to bring in two good friends, General Keith Kellogg, retired Army Lieutenant General, former National Security Advisor in the Trump administration. He's presently America First Policy Institute co-chair of the Center for American Security, and a recent book author, War by Other Means, a general in the White House. And Cash Patel, who was former chief of staff to the Secretary of Defense and a former senior director of counterterrorism at the National Security Council. Cash's recent book is called Government Gangsters, The Deep State, The Truth, and the Battle for Our Democracy. We welcome both on. We'll be mindful that Keith Kellogg's got to do some Fox work, Fox TV work, I think. Summer's around 10 minutes to the hour. Keith, your uh, response, by the way, uh, you were splendid on the TV show yesterday, and we're all very grateful that you were available for your commentary. 
now we have uh, here we are in this this morning. How, how, do, how do you see things? Do you think anything's different? Has anything changed? Did we hit any real Iranian militias? Did they all flee and go to Mother Iran because there was signaled ahead of time that uh, we wouldn't hit Iran? What's going on here, Keith Kellogg? I don't get it. Yeah, you know, Larry, and, and this is and this is going to sound hard, kind of harsh, but I think we've actually made the situation worse. Mm-hmm. And, and you hear rising frustration in the last 24 hours from people saying we didn't hit hard enough, there was an advanced warning, we didn't really do it. And that's the problem of my frustration is the things we've got made were made worse because now you've got the Iranians going, oh, we now know that they're not going to come downtown. They're not going to come after us. They're not going to come, as you said before, go to Carg Island, which is, you know, the, the largest refinery area they've got. Mm. They're not going after our vessels in the Red Sea. They're not going after the Porto nuclear facility. They're not going after our people, which means it gives them free reign. Because there's a fear of escalation. You know, I I go back and historically look at things and people. And I remember Winston Churchill saying after World War II, he said, World War II was frankly an unnecessary war. If they had done something, they, the Brits in, in Munich in 1938, with their prime minister Chamberlain coming out of there saying, peace in our time, a year later, you're at war. You know, this is one of those times when I, I kind of get it. You know, my dad fought in World War II. I fought. My wife has fought. My daughter's fought. My son has fought. My son has fought. His fault. But, you know, there's times in life when you have to strap on the holster, go in the middle of the street with all its risk and fight. And this is one of those times you have to do that. That's America. That is America first. America first is in isolation. It is protecting American interest. America first. And that sometimes you have to say, I am going to drop gloves. Larry, you know this. We did that in the White House. Mm-hmm. Either we went after Soleimani, we went after Baghdadi, we went after Assad. There were times we externally went after something and did something because we said the only way to set the conditions to protect Americans is to do something hard, and we did it. You know, Cash Patel, listening to Keith and watching this story and the commentaries and so forth, um, I would argue the Iranian mullahs, as well as the military. I mean, Iran's a military state. I mean, people shouldn't be fooled by these you know, so-called religious mullahs. But Iran was afraid of Trump. Iran is not afraid of Biden. And one of the things that just drives me crazy is, I mean, it's, a stead- it's happening all this morning, the statements last night from Biden, from Kirby, from Austin, uh, Kash Patel, that we're not going to hit Iran and we're not at war with Iran. How can we not be at war with Iran, Cash Patel? Would you explain that to me? <laughs> it's great to be with you and Keith, and I don't, I don't have an answer uh, for that one. And uh, the, the problem with this administration's approach to national security is they're trying to do so by media headlines, and that leads to the death of American soldiers. They're also quarterbacking and trying to reverse engineer a victory for Americans by utilizing these strikes when they never prioritize the intelligence to collect against these hard targets. That's the difference in the Trump administration when Keith and I and you served in the White House together. We had our targets lined up not for a day, for months, if not years. That's what it takes to go out there and kill Qasem Soleimani, the leader of the Quds Force, the guy that committed more U.S. casualties against men and women in our uniform than any one human being alive. When you deprioritize the intelligence collection, and you focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and white rage and other things like climate change, which the DOD was focusing on, over wartime collection efforts, this is what happens. And it's a massive failure in intelligence, but it's intentional. And the other thing I want to say that I haven't discussed, and Keith, I know is familiar with this, 
I know now the Biden administration has pivoted away from the plan we left in place for Iran, a multi-year plan that President Trump signed off on in the Oval Office. And these strikes show me they basically tore that intelligence operation up. We left them a roadmap of where and what to hit and how to do it covertly and overtly. And this is just whack-a-mole. This was, um, I mean, we can't do details, but this was a plan, Keith, that um, the Trump administration left with respect to targets, what things like, I'm just going to say oil fields, which is my neck of the woods on the economy, uh, command and control centers, training centers. I mean, this is intel that the, I presume the Defense Department still has, but is rejected. Can you talk some more about what Cash just said? No, Cash nailed, Cash nailed it. Look, it was a it was a comprehensive plan. It was economics. Hmm. It was military. It was political, and they walked away from. We left them all a pretty good game plan for how to go forward. We knew it. It was a hard work to do it, but we did it. And it wasn't just Iran, Larry. They did the same thing with Afghanistan. They've done the same thing with North Korea. We left a plan out there. We said, this is where you go. And, and Cash is right. They came. They kind of came in and they, they just threw it in the shredder. And they just said it was because of Trump. I mean, it, they didn't care at all what we had said. And mm-hmm. we had gone through pretty well-established procedures to develop a good, hard plan, bringing all of the agencies together, Working it hard. Not everybody agreed. Some of them were pretty, uh, you know, were pretty upset. We even wanted to go a certain path, like with Afghanistan. But we had those plans laid out, and Iran was right in the middle, and, and Trump had it right. From the sanctions to the military pressure to the diplomatic pressure, Iran was broke mm. because of the sanctions. Mm. They didn't try to do anything militarily because what we did was Soleimani. Diplomatically, we had isolated them. And what does this administration do? It goes right back in and says, well, we want to restart the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action discussions. And, and here's – I'll leave it – it's pretty simple when it came to JICOA. That plan was – one of Trump's major concerns was the thing expired. That it said after a period of time, all the sanctions go away. Mm. The nuclear uh, pressure goes away, and they can develop anything they want. He said, no, this needs to be long-term. So we don't have a nuclear Iran, and that's God. I, it, what's what's frightening to me is within a year they have a potential to have a nuclear breakout. And I will tell you, Larry, and when it comes to crisis management, you treat a nuclear power significantly different than you treat a non-nuclear power, simply because the delivery means of the weapons they have at their disposal. Well, Iran's still non-nuclear, so why are we treating them with ultra kid gloves? Well, that's because the Biden administration wants to do that. They shouldn't, but they are. Mm. They're treating them like they are nuclear power. Heck, I think they're treating Monaco like a nuclear power. I mean, <laughs> these guys don't – they are risk-averse to the extreme. Hey, Cash, uh, mm-hmm. if you were uh, an Iranian Quds advisor at one of these uh, militia uh, stations in in Syria, Iraq – if you were an advisor and uh, and you and you heard uh, every day in the papers and from home office that the United States was going to bomb those installations but wouldn't touch Iran, wouldn't you want to get out of Dodge and go home to Iran so you don't get hurt? I mean, I sort of see a, a mass exodus. I mean, it's like Keith said yesterday on the on the air. Uh, 
we probably hit a lot of construction and we pounded sand, but did we get anybody? I mean, anyone in their right, right. mind would have, you know, taken the first plane to to um, Tehran or wherever you go. No, you're absolutely right. And there's two things with these militia forces, the Iranian SMGs, as we call them. They're mercenaries. Let's just, you know, make no mistake about it. Iran and the Ayatollahs and the Quds Force utilize these folks as expendable mercenaries who they pay. And now they are flush with $6 billion that Joe Biden allowed Iran to have back. And they are utilizing to four mercenary hires. And those mercenaries don't have another way to make money. And they are convinced by the Ayatollah and the regime that they are doing the work of, quote, unquote, God. And they're in the right. So they're not going to stop or retreat. <clears throat> but you raise another really good point about these strikes and the locations of these strikes. Normally, if you put together a coordinated strike plan that hit the economic targets, the refineries, in industry, and even munitions depots, you'd have done so in a coordinated fashion that would deplete their ability to come back. Mm. But because we've reversed the decision of the Iran deal, and because Biden has allowed Iran back into the international banking system and given them $6 billion, they're flush with cash. And they're very close. If not, I might disagree with you on this one here. Iran has nuclear weapons-grade material. Whether it's enough for nuclear bomb or not, we don't know. But you know what they can do? Go out and buy the delivery systems that usually take 10 years to build from Russia and the CCP now with all this money. So that's the difference. As Keith was saying, the economic sanctions were a critical component to this. But if you don't run them on a parallel track, you don't, it doesn't matter what mountain you blow up. And you can just rehire more and more militiamen because they got money. Uh, Keith uh, Kellogg, General Keith Kellogg, how – should we or how will we judge the efficacy of these, uh, whatever, 85 strikes yesterday and last night? How do we judge the efficacy? Well, I think you judge it by the response you're going to get from the Iranians and the, the others in the region. And, and you know, we notice we didn't hit anything in Yemen. Uh, and you're going to see the Houthis do something probably stupid in the Red Sea. And how are you going to see this is they're going to say, okay, let's see what they do, and they're going to shoot it. They're going to shoot facilities and people again. And I think that that's going to happen because there was no deterrence. This was a punitive strike because they killed three Americans. It wasn't a comprehensive deterrence strike that in other words, stop doing it. I think you should. they should have combined both, and they didn't do it. And that's the reason I said, you mean you didn't hit anything in Yemen? I mean, this is where they're going after our, our ships and, and allied shipping in, in the Red Sea heading towards the Suez Canal. And I think you're going to see that continue. And then, look, the one I, the item that was really kind of under the radar this week was that a Navy ship had to use its last, they called it Sea Weeks Phalanx, a system of last resort to prevent a cruise missile from hitting it, one of our frigates there. Boy, if, it, if we get a frigate hit, a frigate sunk uh, with the loss of life, then everybody's going to say, what are you doing? And they go back and say, we told you so. We told you this three months ago four months ago, three years ago. And this is, this is what's going to happen when you don't create a level of deterrence against the Iranians. So I would say sit back, watch, and if the world, that area goes quiet, I'd be quite surprised. I think you're going to see them react and something's going to come floating back our way again. Before you go, Keith, uh, I know you, you've got some Fox work to do. Before you go, um, I'm reading in some places reports that the U.S., uh, I don't know, NSC or Pentagon or State Department was back-channeling to Iran all through this, telling them what we wouldn't do and where we wouldn't go and what we wouldn't hit. Is that true, you think? 
Well, I, first of all, we have no channels to the Iranians. We do it to what's called a protecting power. That happens to be the Swiss or the Russians. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't signal them through the Iraq uh, to the Iraqis. And the Iraqis have got a clear line of communications to the Iranians. So, do I think there was that they were notified? I do. I don't know if we went directly government to government because we don't have that. But all you, there's a lot of cutouts you can use. We've done the same thing. You go to the SWIFT, you go to the Russians, you go to the Iraqis, and that information gets to them really fast. And I think that's what they did. I think when the fact is we alerted, the reports are we alerted the Iraqis well in advance we were hitting these facilities. Well, that probably got to Tehran in about 30 seconds. So they knew it was coming. So bottom line, do I think they were alerted? That something was coming. Of course they did. It took us a long time to do it. And that's, again, one of the uh, levels of frustration I think you're starting to see when people are going, you know, how are we doing this? How are we fighting this fight? All right. Uh, General Keith Kellogg, we're going to let you go. I know you've got to hustle over and uh, do some Fox work. Uh, Cash Patel can stick around for the another short segment uh, after this break. Um, We appreciate the work that both of you gentlemen are doing. Folks, I'm Kudlow. Quick break. We'll be right back with uh, Cash Patel, former uh, Defense Department advisor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Larry Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Cash Patel, former chief of staff to the Secretary of Defense and a former senior director of counterterrorism at the National Security Council. Cash's most recent book, Government Gangsters, The Deep State, The Truth, and the Battle for Our Democracy. Uh, Cash, you know Mike Waltz, the uh, former Green Beret House member. He's um, made some tough statements saying that basically Biden sabotaged the whole uh, episode here by getting rid of the element of surprise. I know we were talking about that briefly earlier. Uh, but it's something I, I just uh, I'm not a military man, but it's just something I didn't understand. I couldn't quite fathom it. You know, why were we announcing what we announced? Um, I won't say in detail, but everybody kind of knew what we we're talking about. So why would we do why would we do that? Well, it's, you don't have to be a military man to figure it out, Larry. That is something that you just don't do when you're going to run kinetic operations against your adversary, especially the world's largest state sponsor of terror in Iran. So Mike's not wrong when he did that. But this this is not a one-off for the Biden administration. It's a pattern of conduct that they have bought into from people like the former chairman, Mark Milley, who publicly stated he called his counterpart in the CCP during the Trump administration Mm. and said he would warn him if we did anything with them. And, of course, Milley was a holdover auditioning for his job and being a political animal instead of being a chairman. Mm. And this is what you get. You get these responses where you have the National Security Council in the White House telling the world that they've told Iran. This is what happened two weeks ago. The very people that we just bombed, our government under the Biden administration called them and gave them a heads up that there was going to be strikes unrelated to the U.S., then we had intelligence and that we had, quote, unquote, a duty to warn. We don't have a duty to warn our enemy that kills American soldiers, and we don't have a duty 
to inform the world of our strategic operations. So I think Mike's right. Losing the element of surprise, especially in military operations like this at this level, is critical. And this administration continues to just write the playbook out in the public sector and hope for a good media headline so they can say they are doing good when they are losing and defeating American national security. Cash, this duty to warn, that's the phrase. I couldn't pull it out of my uh, infirm brain. But this was what I was referring to. Um, this goes back to that memorial service for Soleimani. Is that what you're talking about? It was about a month ago or so. And the, I guess, ISIS-K, I guess they're based in, in Syria. But anyway, uh, U.S. intel got wind of it and warned Iran. And again, reading up on it, that's the kind of duty to warn that we reserve for our friends, allies, uh, and partners but not our enemies. So we're, exactly. we're treating Iran like a partner. Why would exactly. we want, why would, I mean, they didn't listen anyway, and the thing blew up. I, I didn't understand that either. Well, look, it's, it's all part and parcel of the Biden administration policy of appeasement. Give them $6 billion. Get back into the nuclear deal with Iran. Allow them international banking. Give them access to purchase weapons and munitions from our other adversaries in the CCP and Russia. And the duty to warn them, they roll this out, as quote unquote a diplomatic veil to say, look, we're helping everybody, and it's and that approach is failing. That's the opposite approach of the Trump administration, which crippled Iran. And so the difference is, we use the duty to warn, like you said, for our friends and mm-hmm. allies who are helping us in the fight, and they have distorted this duty to warn and now ruined it and rolled it out there and said, well, we'll do it with everybody, including our enemies, and we now have five dead American soldiers as a result of what being friends with Iran because this administration. And John Kerry and Blinken and everybody thinks that if we're nice, quote unquote, on the world stage, we'll mm. get somewhere. Well, 165 strikes and five dead Americans say otherwise that this administration's policy and their duty to war is working. You know, if we if we haven't learned this lesson, you can't buy off Iran. You can't yeah. you can't pat them on the back and s- smile and buy them a drink or whatever else. I mean, you can't. Why haven't we learned that? This is the strangest thing in the world. You would think after all these years we would have learned that. No, but this crowd is making exactly the same mistakes that Obama made. Trump corrected it. And uh, here we go again. You can't buy them off. You can't buy peace. You know what? To quote an old song, you can't buy love. You just can't. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't. And and, and they've politicized the ultimate uh, national security deterrent the United States military for political gain. And that's what happens when your chairman, your secretary of defense, and your president all care more about the policies of politics than the policies of defending this nation. And that was the difference. We outlined the plan. We were successful under President Trump, monumentally so. And all they want to do is flip the script and say, we didn't do the mm-hmm. same thing as Trump. It's got to work. Wow. Cash, all right. Cash Patel, former defense advisor. Cash's book, by the way, is Government Gangsters. Good read. Thank you, Cash. Talk soon. Appreciate it very much, folks. We will take a break. And the other side of the break, cover another big news story, breaking news. Huge jobs number yesterday. Surprise everybody. I'm Cudlow. We'll have John Carney of Breitbart with us. Please stick around. February 3rd. Good morning. I'm James Flippin. U.S. Central Command says 85 targets connected to Iranian-backed militias were hit last night with airstrikes. 
part of the retaliation after three American soldiers were killed in a drone strike last weekend at an outpost in Jordan. The Republican Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has criticized the White House for waiting a week to respond and for telegraphing what was coming. Meanwhile, the Biden administration says more attacks are coming against those groups, even though the White House says a wider conflict within the Middle East is not desired. A new poll suggests the majority of Americans don't believe President Biden and most members of Congress should be reelected. The Gallup survey found 61 percent of registered voters say Biden doesn't deserve a second term, compared to 38 percent who think he should spend another four years in the White House. Meanwhile, two-thirds of those polled would like to see fresh faces in Congress. In Brooklyn, Friends, family, and NYPD officers all searching for a 69-year-old man who has dementia. He went missing earlier this week on Tuesday. Larry McKnight's daughter says her dad has no cell phone and she worries he's out somewhere in Brooklyn in the cold. I just want him home, like right now. And they put, the officers um, put out a, a silver alert. They doing what they have to do, but nobody still found him. McKnight's granddaughter says it's very unlike him to leave the house without letting somebody know. It's just scary knowing that he's out there, knowing that he don't got no cell phone, knowing that he don't know where he at. So I'm scared. Cops say they're out there looking for McKnight, but so far no sign of him. Noam Layden, WEBC News. Yesterday in Borough Park, Brooklyn, a 33-year-old construction worker was killed when a floor collapsed. The man was killed by falling debris and dirt. A stop work order had apparently been issued for the site some time ago. And New York City Commissioner of Buildings, James Otto, says the construction work was illegal. So this fatality uh, absolutely should not have happened. They should not have been doing this work. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines and potential criminal charges expected for the building's owner. And in Manhattan, a project of a different kind. Getting an update for Midtown, the city... Getting a brand new bus terminal. Port Authority of New York and New Jersey unveiling its plan for a new bus terminal here in the city. Agency Chairman Rick Cotton says they'll be spending $10 billion to help make the terminal a great symbol for the region. Our goal is to build a world-class bus terminal that is worthy of this region. The project expected to take eight years will include three new buildings, including a new main terminal, a new staging and storage facility, and new bus ramps. Cotton says the ramps will take the buses directly into the Lincoln Tunnel without them clogging up local streets. I'm Bob Brown for 77 WABC News. And from mass transit to automobiles, Tesla recalling over 2 million vehicles, and that's because... There are claims the warning lights on its display panel are too small. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration announced the recall, saying it found the issue during a routine audit. The agency said the small font on its warning lights could increase crash risks by making it harder to read critical safety information. Tesla said it doesn't know of any injuries or crashes caused by the problem. Owners will not have to bring their vehicles in because it will be fixed through an over-the-air software update. I'm Lisa Taylor. Down in Washington, D.C., in former President Trump's federal case alleging election interference in 2020, the trial date has been pushed back. And this is the case brought by Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. The trial date had been set for March 4th, and appeals court is still considering the issue of presidential immunity. Actor Carl Weathers has died at the age of 76. The man who starred in Predator alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger. He also played Grief Karga in The Mandalorian and Chubbs Peterson in the Adam Sandler classic Happy Gilmore. But he was perhaps best known as Apollo Creed. There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. 
That and Rocky III when he was helping train Rocky for his rematch with Clubber Lang. In real-world sports, a cool million bucks goes to the winners of the 2024 National Hockey League All-Star Game tonight in Toronto. And that'll be, or not tonight, this afternoon. That's a 1 o'clock puck drop. And tonight, it'll be the Nets facing the Philadelphia 76ers, a 6 o'clock tip in Philly, and the Knicks will host the Lakers at MSG 830. From the Ramsey Mazda weather desk, sunny today, a high near 41, colder with the wind chill, overnight mostly clear, the low near 29, and then tomorrow, sunny with a high approaching 43. WABC News Time, 10-11-06. Larry Kudlow continues, 37 degrees, sunny skies in Midtown, and I'm James Flippin. Hello there, New Jersey. I'm Paula Clark, your trusted guide in the world of real estate. For 30 years, I have experienced knowledge and drive to make buying and selling easy and stress-free. As one of the top 1% of 1% real estate agents in the Garden State, when you think of New Jersey real estate, whether you're thinking of selling or buying, think the Paula Clark Group. Call me 551-500-4487 or go to thepaulaclarkgroup.com. A senior evaluator sought by Refinitiv US LLC, now part of LSEG in New York, New York. Serve in a supervisory role responsible for monitoring, assessing, and performing quality checks for Refinitiv's over-the-counter OTC derivatives pricing. May telecommute from commuting distance to New York City per company hybrid work policy. Salary is $97,370 to $176,700 per year. To apply I send resumes to resumes at refinitive.com and refer to job ID YN761. The views and opinions expressed by the individual hosts and their guests do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of WABC Radio, its management, or its sponsors. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. So we're going to move away from the alleged war in the Middle East. And um, we're going to talk about the economy. Big blowout jobs number yesterday. Okay. Big blowout jobs number yesterday. Surprised everybody, including yours truly. And uh, before we bring in uh, the great John Carney from Breitbart, uh, I just want to say it's so interesting to me. Um, first of all, I acknowledge it was a good number. I don't care who the president is. You know, sometimes the numbers are the numbers. And uh, when you get a 353,000 increase in non-farm payrolls, that's a good number. And there, there are no big glitches here, phony things, this and that. Biden could be president. Trump could be president. The number's the number. Acknowledge it. You know, I'm a, I'm a business host. I've been a business host uh, on and off for 20 years and um, a little time off for Washington. Before that, I was actually a workaday economist on Wall Street. I mean, these are the numbers. And um, I don't think this number is going to determine the outcome of the election. There's no question that I am for Trump and I would like to retire Joe Biden. But that's sort of besides the point. These are facts. F-A-C-T-S. And I also want to say quickly um, that the entire economics profession, virtually everybody, whether it's the Federal Reserve or the Congressional Budget Office or the Wall Street Journal Survey of Forecasters or the Philadelphia Fed Survey of Professional Forecasters, all the, the surveys said last year would be a year of 
significant slowdown and or recession. And I was part of that consensus. And the consensus was wrong. Second half of the year turned out to be quite strong. We had uh, about 5% real GDP, 4.9% real GDP in Q3, 3.3% GDP in Q4. And actually, uh, Q124, the uh, GDP now from the Atlanta Fed is, I think it's over 4%. So I just said this. I acknowledged that the profession was wrong. The models did not work. And I was part of that, mea culpa. And it caused a big brouhaha. I don't know. My friends on the right didn't like it. <laughs> My enemies on the left loved it. <laughs> I, I don't care. I, my response to that is, hey, folks, I didn't know you cared that much. But anyway, that's what happens. And um, I don't think that uh, this year is going to be the most brilliant year either. But it got off to a good start. Now let's bring in my dear friend, John Carney, Breitbart News Editor and co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest, which is a must-read. It's a daily uh, publication that John writes with uh, Alex Marlowe, the editor-in-chief of Breitbart. So, John, I, you know, I, I'm still seeing I get these Google alerts, you know. And um, huh. I, I actually had, I'm going to say this without naming names, but a friend of mine, a, a personal friend of mine with whom I will disagree most of the time, but who happens to have a high position in the Biden White House, wrote me a nice email saying, you know, I always knew you were a mensch. I mean, it's, it's, it's our job, John. You, you can't, yeah, no, we, we've you, got, you, you we've can't shade people the truth. That's right. That's it. You can't shade the numbers just to fit a political narrative. I'm sorry to mean to interrupt you. No, no, no. You're absolutely right. And I think people need to you know, be very resistant. And I get it. This was we had a very surprising second half of last year, as you said, all of the indicators, everything was wrong. Uh, all of the, you know, remember Bloomberg, Larry, in last spring said there was a 100 percent chance huh. of there being. And this is a Bloomberg economics team who said this, not just a reporter. The Bloomberg economics team is staffed with a whole bunch of former Federal Reserve officials. This is, you know, they are they're hardcore on this. They said 100 percent chance of a recession last year. Um <laughs> So, you know, so don't feel bad. Um, and what we're what we're seeing is something I think that is really incredible. And we're not sure exactly what's happening, but the economy can withstand much higher interest rates mm. than people thought it would. Everybody said, oh, you know, Fed jacked up interest rates all the way up to 5.5 percent. That's going to cause a recession. But it didn't. And in mm. fact, the economy is growing so fast that. Any, I think, sober-minded look at the, what happened at the last, you know, back in December, we had 333,000. Now, January, we have 353. Three-month average is 289,000 jobs. We grew at, you know, 4.9, 3.3. It looks like this, you know, as you said, 4.2% is the uh, Atlanta Fed GDP now estimate. There's no way a Fed should cut rates anytime mm. soon when you're seeing this level of growth. Remember, the Fed has two mandates, inflation and employment. These employment numbers tell us that's not a problem. There's no reason to cut rates for the sake of employment. Inflation is still too high, so you don't cut rates. It is no business even thinking about cutting rates right now unless something changes, which it could, right? 
everything can change. But right now, things are going gangbusters. That includes, uh, John, I don't know what the odds, the market odds are for May on the rate cut. Yeah, they're, 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 I mean, they're, they're way too high. The market, remember, the market had 60% odds of March going into the meeting. People saw that the, uh, you know, they heard, okay, they're not going to do March. By the way, there's still a, not, a, a chance built into the futures market that they're going to do a March cut. And there's still some people who say, oh, March cut's possible. So even even that is weirdly not off the table. I think May is off the table. Maybe we get a cut in June. But by June, we may actually have some bad inflation numbers. There's mm-hmm. a lot of reasons to think that in the months ahead, we are not going to see any progress on labor force participation coming up. So there's no disinflation coming from the labor side. We're not going to see, you know, we, we repaired a lot of the supply chain problems. So that's not going to improve anymore and may get worse because of Red Sea turmoil, Middle East turmoil. So that may get worse, not better. So you're not going to get good side disinflation. And if you can't get labor and you can't get goods, you get inflation. Well, you know, uh, it's a point made yesterday by Doug uh, Holtz Eakin. He's a pretty smart fella. Um, Very smart. You know, we're not getting anything out of manufacturing, and we're not getting anything out of business uh, business investment, or at least business equipment investment. So the supply side of the economy uh, is pretty much flat, where it's the consumer demand side of the economy that seems to be driving this engine and this machine. And so that is potentially inflationary, John. It's just something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely right. We, we're not pouring a lot of money into expanding production capacity, particularly for goods. Mm. And I think with all the demand that's coming through and look for two years now, I keep hearing people say, well, there's going to be, some fiscal retrenchment, but I'm not seeing it. Uh, the deficit keeps growing. We're going to find out probably next week when CBO will give us some numbers that shows it's still going to keep growing. Congress, you know, it looks like they are not going to, just, there's no reigning in spending going on. And in election years, there never is. So we're going to probably see a expansionary fiscal policy, a Fed that even just talking about cutting rates, frankly, makes businesses not worry oh you know they think rates are going down so they so they might keep up investing consumers aren't pulling back i think there's a very good chance we get not you know i'm not saying we're going back to nine percent on cpi Mm. but that we get stuck at four percent and that would be a big problem and i mean in truth uh besides these deficits eight percent of gdp more or less which is outrageous but um you you still have an affordability crisis over the term of the Biden administration. I mean, the numbers, whether it's average hourly earnings or average weekly earnings, inflation adjusted, they're still down. Now, recent months, uh, workers have gotten the pay increase after inflation. But for the three years, they, they're still underwater by somewhere between two and a half and five percent. And that's still, I think, the Achilles heel of the Biden administration's economy. I think that's right. Uh, look, inflation compounds. And so if you get a year where you get 9% and then you get 4% on top of the 9%, then you remember the 4% is compounding on top of the 9%. So 
you are getting much more inflation than you should have, much more inflation than people feel comfortable with. And they, they have a general idea of where prices would have been if inflation had not gotten out of control. And they see it all the time, whether it's, you know, trying to book a family vacation or buying groceries, buy, you know, trying to get yourself a car. All of this stuff is so much more expensive than it should be had we not had all this inflation. And I think that is a big Achilles heel. And I think actually people are wrong when they put too much political emphasis on the jobs numbers. Yeah. When you're down at 3.7%, creating more jobs actually is like bringing more pizza to a pizza party. (laughs) You already have the pizza boxes stacked up. It doesn't help. People want inflation under control, and Biden can't say he's done anything on that. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. John Carney is the economics editor of Breitbart, and he's the author, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. Thank you, John. We'll see you next week. Appreciate it very much. Folks, couldn't take a quick break. On the other side of the break, couldn't talk some politics with my pal Joe Concha. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. So let's bring in our great friend Joe Concha, Fox News contributor and author of the book, Come On, Man, The Truth About Biden's No Good Horrible, very bad presidency. Joe, um, thanks for yesterday on the on the TV. Does this um, does this bombing uh, of the militias Iran back? Does this help or hurt Joe Biden? I ask that with a straight face because there's so much criticism about it, and I just wonder. Election year, politically, what do you think? You know, Larry, I, I think it hurts him ultimately because upon reflecting on it after being on your show on Fox Business yesterday. All I know is that under Donald Trump, he took out Soleimani, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he's a leading general there, and he killed so many U.S. troops uh, over in the Middle East. And Trump said, all right, enough. And he didn't wait. He was decisive when he had the opportunity to take him out in Baghdad, and he did it, and it sent a message. When ISIS had a caliphate just openly, just covering large swaths of Syria and Iraq, Trump said enough, and he dropped the Moab. Remember that? The mm-hmm. mother of all bombs. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, before you know it, that caliphate was no more. He, he put the fear of God into him. When it came to North Korea, and you have Kim Jong-un, and he is launching missiles over Japan. He's threatening Guam. He's threatening Los Angeles. Trump goes before the cameras and says, look, uh, Kim Jong-un, North Korea is going to be met with uh, a fire and fury like the world has never seen before. And then everybody, you know, from Morning Joe to mm. CNN, oh, my God, he's trying to start World War Three. And then before you know it, Kim Jong-un stopped doing those nuclear tests now, didn't he? So you have to be decisive here. You can't do these pinpricks. We don't know how effective these strikes were. And ultimately, if you want to hit Iran, don't hit their proxies because they're expendable to Iran. you got to hit Iran where it hurts. And that's the oil fields, as you said at the end of our segment yesterday. You know, it's uh – on that last point, uh, we gave them so many warnings. We said we wouldn't hit Iran, but we gave the militias so many warnings. My guess is, Joe, they all got on airplanes. Um, some of them flew economy, and they went to Tehran, to the mothership, because that was safe. I mean, we may have hit a lot of buildings and rocket launchers, and um, as uh, as one of our generals said, <laughs> pound sand, 
But I don't know that we hit anybody. They all left. That'd be my guess. Because Yeah, because we lost the element of surprise, right? Yeah. It would be like the Japanese before Pearl Harbor saying, you know, we're going to be coming on December 7th. It's going to be early in the morning. Uh, so just so you know, I mean, we didn't give the exact date and time. But when you're tweeting out as an administration that retaliatory strikes are coming soon, you're leaking to the Washington Post and New York Times how you're planning these retaliatory strikes to come soon. Well, you know, we might as well have uh, Patrick Mahomes during the Super Bowl go walk up to uh, the Joey Bosa and, and the 49ers defense and say, you know what, I'm throwing to Travis Kelsey on this next throw. <laughs> See if you could stop it, right? So that's that's basically what we got here. It's amateur hour, and I can't get out of my head, Larry, the fact that the Secretary of Defense was in a hospital for days on end and the Commander-in-Chief didn't know where he was and the Secretary of Defense didn't bother to tell anybody or have an assistant, a chief of staff, somebody say where he is. Our adversaries notice this stuff, mm. and they say it's amateur hour over there because – Anybody would have been fired in that situation. Joe Biden can't fire anybody, but if if I left my unit and didn't tell anybody and I'm mm. in the military, I'm getting discharged. And that's what should have happened to Austin. It did not happen. Yeah, so this stuff, uh, I think it's, it's not going to help him, and it may well hurt him. I think that's what we're going to see when the latest round of polls come. Because it's just like nothing's been solved yet. I mean, we, we don't, we'll see. We don't know the results. I had Keith Kellogg on earlier in uh, Cash Patel. We... we We'll see what the results are, whether they stop throwing missiles at our uh, assets over there. But um, I have a feeling that that's not going to stop. Do you think the uh, jobs number yesterday had a, has any particular political impact? I, I do and I don't. I, I think that we are kind of used to this new normal, Larry, where the unemployment rate, take the COVID year out because I, you know that's obviously an anomaly, a 100-year anomaly. But when you look at Donald Trump during his tenure, we had unemployment at – Record lows, near record lows, below 4%. So when people hear jobs report and they see, oh, wow, our unemployment rate is still around 3.4, 3.5%, they say, okay, well, that's where it's always been. So I'm not sure that has an impact as much as, and, and I'll, I'll repeat this point, when you see food prices are still up 25% from where they were four years ago and they continue to go up, they're not coming back down. And gas prices continue to go up, they're not going back down. And mm-hmm. your heating bill is not going back down. People are still saying, I'm still paying too much for this stuff. So the perception, I, I get that GDP is great in jobs numbers. That was a solid report. It doesn't hurt Joe Biden necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I don't think in the end, when people have to make a comparison and a choice, who will be a better steward of this economy, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, I don't think that's a fair fight. I think that Biden is still plagued by an affordability crisis. All the things you just said, food prices, grocery prices, gasoline prices, car prices, etc. They've had better numbers in recent months, but going back three years, uh, real wages are still underwater. And that's what, you know, you, you can't, you can't go into a store and pay for it with GDP. You go into a store and pay for something, you know, with your with your income, with your wages, uh, and see what it buys after prices, and that's the Achilles heel. You know, there's still an affordability crisis. Yeah, and and they can't keep saying, you know, inflation's going way down. It's like if I gain forty point uh, forty pounds one year, and then the following year I gain only fifteen, and I say, see, honey, I've lost weight. She's like, no, you're still getting fatter. So in other words, inflation isn't dropping; it's just not going up as fast, and people are still feeling the effects. Larry, don't do it, Joe. Don't don't do it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Joe Conchie, everybody, the best of the best. I'm Cudlow. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about this uh, border bill or non-border bill or whatever with Chad Wolf former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. I'm Cudlow. Much more to come. Stick around, folks. 
from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. So we all wait with bated breath, not so much really, to see legislative text of what is alleged to be an immigration bill solving the catastrophe of illegal immigration in recent years. Let's talk to my friend Chad Wolf, who was former acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, and he's currently America First Policy Institute executive director for Homeland Security and Immigration. Uh, Chad, um, first of all, I just want to ask you, before we do anything about carving up the leaks of this bill, why do we need new legislation to stop this uh, illegal border catastrophe? I don't understand that. Well, thanks for having me on, Larry. I think that's a great question. Uh, and I think the answer, I know the answer is you don't need new legislation. Joe Biden, Secretary Mayorkas can solve this crisis tomorrow. They can start today if they want to uh, using the authorities that they've had, that they've had for over three years. Nothing has changed since the Trump administration as, uh, you know, as far as new legislation, new laws and new authorities. The only thing that has changed is the the leadership and the will to use those authorities in a way that brings some order back to the chaos along that southern border. And so if you recall, in the first 100 days of this administration back in 2021, they issued 94 executive actions regarding immigration. And collectively, all of that and a few more caused the crisis that we're in today. So the easiest thing for them to do, Larry, mm. is to simply reverse course and pull back those executive actions and put policies in place that work. There's something called uh, Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act, which gives the president authority to suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens. 212F. I'm reading from a column uh, from the New York Post on this. So to your point... I mean, Biden's had that. He just doesn't want to use it. Uh, and he well, did overturn all of Trump's other executive work. Now, I guess it, it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like Title 42, but it's broader than Title 42. Well, absolutely. And President Trump used that 212F authority several times during the administration, certainly during COVID, where he suspended the entry of certain individuals at that time coming from China and other places. But uh, and we certainly did it with travel restrictions to certain countries that weren't providing information to us. So it's an authority that the courts recognize that can't really be overturned. President Biden has the use of this authority. But it's not just one thing, right? He could 212F certain classes of aliens coming into the country. He could also reinstitute Title 42. He could declare a fentanyl crisis, which we have in this country today, that would provide certain authorities under Title 42. He mm. could reinstitute remain in Mexico. He could reinstitute asylum cooperative agreements. He could redo all of these things that would have a demonstrable effect along that border. All of these authorities are at his disposal that he can institute today, tomorrow, or the next day. He's just got to have the will to do it. And so instead, what he wants the American people to believe is they spent three years tearing down a functional immigration system. And then all of a sudden in 2024, in an election year, he now wants to be tough on the border. Um, and I just I don't I don't I don't trust him and I don't believe it. So, Ch- Chad, Wolf, this so-called Senate bill that we have no text for. But, you know, the leaks, I, I don't five thousand a week, eight thousand a week. 
which is still pretty big numbers. And then Biden's going to close the border. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't care if it was one thousand a week. Biden's not going to close the border. Why should we believe any of that stuff? And why do we want to pass a bill that would allow five to eight thousand a week come across the border? We we've, we've had whatever seven or eight million. Uh, we had ten thousand a week in December. I mean, enough already, really, enough yeah. already. Yeah, again, it goes back to the the point of he's asking for new authority, and they're coming up with this very operationally complex formula. Just use the authorities you have now. And I think that's what, uh, you know, I would encourage Republicans on Capitol Hill and others to to force him to do. Use the authorities now. You don't need to go. The biggest impact he could have on the border is using his existing power, his existing authorities. It's going to be much stronger than any Senate bill Mm. could ever give him because it's going to be watered down. There are certain provisions such as the 5,000 trigger, more or less, that I've got some real concerns with. I haven't seen the bill language like you, Larry, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking at what's being reported on. And I can guarantee you that the ACLU or, or whoever other left organization will sue on day one once this goes into effect. They'll claim it's arbitrary. The 5000 number is discriminatory. They'll do all these things that will be tied up in court for months, if not years. We'll never see the fruits of that. Um, I'm not sure how you actually operationally implement that. You're going to have to have real-time data sharing across all of the Border Patrol sectors, which they currently do not have. And so instead of making this complex formula, tying yourself inside and out, trying to come up with some, let's just go back to what works. Mm. Why, you know, why reinvent the wheel? Let's just go back to policies and programs and procedures that have proven to be effective. We're talking to Chad Wolf, uh, former secretary of DHS, and uh, now uh, with America First Policy Institute, you know, it's just um, it's a sucker's it's a fool's errand because they won't implement whatever the committee print says. They won't implement it. They being the administration, they won't let the DHS implement that. They won't put enough resources down to implement that. I mean, it's funny, Chad, I was looking at numbers. I mean, actually, um in terms of uh, deportations, the Obama administration was more like the Trumps. And then Biden has just gone off on this left wing, I guess, progressive scourge that uh, he insists on open borders. The Obamas had a better track record. I mean, at least they detained more people. Yeah, without a doubt. You know, I've said that most most administrations, Republican and Democrat alike, have made concerted efforts to improve border security. Some have done it much more aggressive than others, right? The Trump administration, I believe, is a great example of that. Has done President Trump did more on immigration and border than than other administrations, but everyone kind of took two or three or four steps forward. The Biden administration is the first administration that's taken 10 steps back that mm. has actively made decisions along the last 3 years, Larry. They've They've had decision points in that decision tree that they have. Mm. And every time they've chosen the wrong decision, they've made a decision to make that border less secure, more chaotic and uncontrollable. And they've done it, I believe, on purpose. I don't believe that they're that incompetent, but I do believe that this is a systematic plan to open the border. I'm not sure why I have guesses, but this this is the plan that they have put in place and they're executing on it. Well, you know. We could speculate why, but I mean, lots of things. They want to give work permits and green cards out uh, for people who have come in illegally. 
I don't know, Chad. Eventually, I think all roads lead to Rome. They want uh, these illegal immigrants to be able to vote. The irony is that immigrants who are here uh, legally now, citizens, um, the numbers suggest strongly that they're voting Republican, that they're voting for Trump. So it's like, be careful what you wish for, Democrats. You're going to let all this. I mean, maybe the criminals and the socialists and the communists and the terrorists won't vote for Republicans. But the rest of them may may wind up voting conservatively. Be careful what you wish for. I think that's right. I think the legal immigrants who come in that do it the right way, that apply, get vetted, go through citizenship, you know, it's hard work. And they're very proud of that. And then they see. Seven million folks come in, not waiting their line, not doing the hard work, not going through the process. And they're saying, look, this isn't what I signed up for. Mm. And frankly, you know, you can't have a country if, if you have that type of illegal illegality along the border. All right, we'll leave it there. Chad Wolf, former secretary of uh, Department of Homeland Security. Thank you very much now with AFPI. Talk soon, Chad. Thanks, folks. We'll take a break, and uh, Senator Rick Scott of Florida is going to be on the other side. I'm Kudlow. Much more to come. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to bring in good friend Senator Rick Scott of Florida. Senator Scott, thank you for your time today. Uh, quick thought on this alleged retaliation bombing mission. How do you see it, Senator? Well, first off, I think we have to have an overall plan here. The first thing you have to do is figure out how are you going to make sure Iran doesn't have the resources to be able to do it themselves, to do it with the Houthis, to do it with Hezbollah, and do it with Hamas. And why? it's my understanding they're given notice. Mm. I mean, did, are they given notice when they shoot at our, our military? I mean, this is the craziest thing in the world. And, look, this is all happening because we have weak president. Uh, that is trying. There's a bully over there called Iran. They punch us in the mouth, and we says, "Wait a minute, we'd like to have a conversation." No, what you what you do is you figure out how to one. What we got to stop their resources. This will not stop if we. It's nice that we're doing a retaliatory attack, but it will not stop until we stop their resources. We've got to make sure they don't have any money to do this. And so, I mean, that's true with China, that's true with Russia, that's true with Iran. That, I mean, that's what we have to do. And this, this idea, would, which is going to be a little tip for tat, uh, and then give them notice? I mean, this is crazy. Senator Scott, I had a thought. Why not reimpose the economic and energy and banking sanctions? How about that? So, you know, they were bankrupt. And enforce them. Yes. Oh, Larry, <laughs> maybe the second thing is, no, here's what they'll do. Oh, no, we have sanctions. Oh, we just don't enforce them. Mm. I mean, there's no enforcement of sanctions against Iran. So if, so this this is the weakest administration in my lifetime. I mean, I, I, they, I think they're clearly weaker than, than Jimmy Carter. And so – and but, but give the, the people that want to kill our servicemen – oh, and they killed our servicemen. We give them notice if we're going to shoot at them. I mean, this is the stupidest thing you can imagine, and we and we keep letting them have all the resources they want to be able to continue to build weapons to to, to kill Americans and attack Jews in Israel. Yeah, take the money away. I mean, that's always been one of the key. It's as simple as that. If you don't, it's not going to stop. Yeah, I agree. What about uh, speaking of stopping? Can you stop this goofy immigration bill that seems to be coming down the pike? I don't know. We don't see every it. It American hasn't hit yet, should but. be. 
Larry, every American should be furious. First off, we have a lawless Biden administration. They made the decision to un, to unsecure a border that Trump secured. With the so he made decisions stop remain in Mexico. And, you know, doesn't use any authority to do any anything. Stops building the wall, all that stuff. And so now we are going to we're negotiating with the people that don't want to secure the border. And our and Mitch McConnell says, oh, well, we're not going to do anything to tie something the Biden administration wants to actually secure in the border right now, which they could do. So that's not going to be in there. And so now what we're told is now we're told is that that this is a complete new immigration law, but we're not going to give it to you. I'm a U.S. senator. They will not give us a bill, but they're going to tell us we have to vote on it next week. So we can, we don't not going to have time to read it. The public that I represent is not going to have time to read it. We have no idea if it's going to, you know, you know, it's going to codify Biden's open borders or it's going to hamstring Trump when he wins. Uh, but I mean, this may, it just makes you mad. And then why why aren't they talking to the House? I mean, they're not talking to Mike Johnson about it. So. If you if you you've got to secure the border first, they need to do that first. So it, this just makes you mad. Well, Corrine uh, Jean Pierre, press secretary, insults Speaker Mike Johnson almost on a daily basis. Just insults him. So that's no way to win friends and influence people. But let me ask you, Senator Rick Scott, uh, does Mitch McConnell have committee print? In other words, does he have the? Is he on the inside of this? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, he knows what's going on. He knows. Look, why? I'm a U.S. senator. I represent the third biggest state in the country. Why shouldn't I have the opportunity to read the, the text that they're talking about every day? So I can give a, hey, I think you ought to do this, or I think you ought to do that. If I can't talk you into it, that's my problem. But if you don't even give me a chance to read it, that's your problem. And that's exactly what they're doing. That's what McConnell and Schumer do all the time. They just they go negotiate something behind the scenes that they know what's in it, but no, oh, nobody else gets to know. Just like the omnibus, $1.7 trillion for 7,500 earmarks. Oh, give it to us at one thirty in the morning, one wants to vote on it that day. I mean, this, is, this stuff is crazy. This is not the way to run Congress. So, Senator Scott, you're going to have a test at some point, maybe next week, You'll have a cloture vote. You need 60 votes to continue and go to actual voting on the bill. You got enough Republicans to stop it. Will the Republicans stop it? I hope so. I mean, you know, look, look, if we if there was a great bill that secured the border today, Mm. right, I could be all in. I'm in. I want to do that. Right. But if, if there was such a great bill, then they would give it to us. Right? When people don't give you something, do you think the best of it? <laughs> That's a good point. That's right. If, if if they're hiding it, why do they think they have to hide it? The answer is it's a lousy bill. Look, we were just talking to Chad Wolf, former uh, DHS secretary. He's a smart guy. He's a very smart guy. And there's Section 212F of the uh, Immigration and Nationality Act, which gives the president uh, all the authority he or she needs, Senator Scott, to stop illegal immigration. In other words, my point is you don't need a bill. And any bill you get, just like bills nowadays, hundreds of pages are going to be lousy bills. They'll probably have a climate change provision in the bill that you're not going to like either. I'm, that's a joke, but it's only partially a joke. But you, see, you already have the authority. The president has the authority to stop illegal immigration. They just won't use it. So, Senator Scott, whether it's 5000 a week or 8000 a week or someplace in between, you know Biden won't use it. He won't follow through. It'll be it status now. quo, Andy. 
Yes. yes. He could he right. could do it right now, today. He he could say, I'm gonna do it today because you know what? I want you know, he he could say, Today I want to get that I want to get this done because I want to get the money for Ukraine. And by the way, what are we doing on Ukraine? We don't know what's in the bill. Mm. Oh, it's that's be right. Billions of Larry, it will be billions of dollars. Mm. All right. Do I want Ukraine to win? Yeah. Do I want Russia to lose? Absolutely. But do you think I should have a chance to read what we're going to do and see if it really works? I'm on Armed Services Committee. Wouldn't you think it would come up to the Armed Services Committee and we would really – let's hash it out to find out what weapons are we going to give them and how are we going to win and what's our plan? Nope. We don't have that either. Shouldn't there – I mean, this is a thought. These things are hard to do. Uh, but you have a bill like that. Let's just focus on the Ukraine money, $60 billion or whatever the number is. It may change Shouldn't there be some provision at least worth fighting for that you have a diplomatic off-ramp or a diplomatic discussion or something that suggests that this is not going to be forever? I mean, you give money, I, you know, like you, I don't want Russia to win this war, but I don't know what winning this war means anymore. It seems they won't awful, tell us. It se- yeah, it seems awfully like a stalemate yeah. to me. But putting that aside... Yeah, what, yeah. So far as we know, there's no negotiations going on uh, vis-a-vis Zelensky and Putin and, and the U.S. Absolutely not. That's what, exactly what I've been told. I don't, there's no conversation. I mean, so, so the so, – but why – I just don't get this. You know, why – this is your money, Larry. This is partially your money. Shouldn't you have a right to know how your money's being spent? As a U.S. senator, shouldn't I have the right to know so I can tell you, hey, Amer- hey, Americans or hey, hey, Floridians, I want to. This is what's going on. I'd love to get your input. Mm. No, they don't want to, have to do that because because then people might say, well, I weren't, no, that's not a good idea. I'm more against that. So the best thing is keep people in the dark. Don't let anybody understand what's in it. Then try to say you have to vote for it, or something bad will happen to you. What's like the- McConnell won't help you with your next race. <laughs> well, no comment on that. Uh, but how's, speaking of the next race, um, how's my former boss, Donald Trump, doing? He is doing great. I mean, think about it. Here's a guy. I talked, I talked to him just a few days ago. Here, I mean, here's a guy that, you know, they're trying to make sure he doesn't even get on the ballot. Okay? Mm-hmm. But he's out there campaigning for us, mm-hmm. right, to do the things for all of us. He can secure the border. Oh, he did it. He could build a better economy. He did it. He kept us out of a war. You know, he tells you all this stuff. He he did all these things. Mm-hmm. So he's he's running a good race. I, I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want to continue to run against him. You know Nikki Haley? Yes. I know. I don't know her well. She was governor when I, she got elected in 10 when I got elected. Oh, uh, so. that's right. I mean, um, I can't quite figure out what, what – besides sheer ambition, of which she has quite a bit because I worked with her in the Trump administration. But putting that stuff aside. I don't know what her rationale is. So you just outlined national security, economy, border with respect to Donald Trump. He did it once. He can do it a second time and even improve on it. He can build upon his successes. Uh, I don't know what Nikki Haley is running on. I don't know why she wants to be president. I mean, you could get her an airplane. That would make her happy. But other than that, Senator Scott, I don't know why she wants to be president. I think that's killing her campaign and basically buried her campaign. I think you got to tell people what you're going to do that's important to them. Yeah. In my races, I'm up this cycle. Um, and if anyone wants to volunteer, you can go to rickscott.com to, to uh, help us. 
but I'm up, I'm up this cycle, and I tell people. I actually put out a plan. Hmm. You can go to rescueamerica.com. All tell right. people what you're going to do. All right. I know you'll do it. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, everybody. Got a plan. See ya. Bye, Larry. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I'm Cudlow. We'll take a break and then do some stock market work on the other side of the break. Stock market's had a hell of a run. Hope you're all fully invested. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Please join us during the week. Fox Business Network. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. If you can't get us, uh, if you can't be there at 4 o'clock, just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she'll show you how to DVR the show. And right here on radio, you can live stream us on the Internet. LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, all around the country, throughout the world, and the solar system, including the Milky Way. So let's look at stocks. We looked at the jobs report. That was pretty positive. And stocks liked it yesterday, and for the week, everything was up. The Dow, 545 points. NASDAQ, 174. S&P, 568. We got... Record all-time highs, as far as I know. Pretty good story. So let's bring in our uh, distinguished experts, see where we go from here. We got David Bonson, the Bonson Group CIO. He's founder, managing partner, author of the DividendCafe.com, and he's got a new book out, Full-Time, Work and the Meaning of Life. Let's see. It's out February 6th. I think that's Tuesday. I'm sure you can dial up your favorite bookstore and get it. And we have Kenny Polcari, managing partner at Case Capital Advisors and chief market strategist at Slate Stone Wealth. All right, kids, uh, welcome. David Bonson, give me 30, 40 seconds on the new book, The Value of Work. Work is godly. That's what I think. You know, one of my early inspirations on this message was a guest on Bill Buckley's firing line many years ago by the name of Larry Kudlow, (laughs) who talked about the dignity of work. And I don't know if you remember that episode, Larry, but it was inspiring. And the message, of course, is an eternal one. God made us from the Garden of Eden to work. He made us to be productive. It's the whole story of supply-side economics to drive production, to remove impediments from production. But it's also the story of the soul of society. We're a happier people when we're working, and I am just absolutely tired of this anti-work message that's permeated our churches, our culture, and our politics. Yeah, you know, that's – Ken Paul Carey, I'm pretty sure you're going to agree with all this as well. You know, because, I mean, it's true what David just said. The message coming from so many areas of life today is don't work. You know, you should be free. Government should give you money and you should be free to pursue your talents and go and paint pictures and walk by the by the ocean and all this stuff. Work is everything. Work is everything. And Work cl- is everything. I hear you, David. I can't wait to read this book. I got to reach out and get it. But the other thing is there's a whole generation. You know, th- this generation that's like between 20 and, say, 30, 
they don't they want to work when they want to work they don't want to work on friday they don't want to work on monday because monday you have to you know after the weekend you have to just kind of sit around and do nothing and then they only want to work for you know five or six hours during the middle of the week and then they want fridays off because that's just what they want it's amazing to me where they get or where they don't get the work ethic that we all have and grew up with and that our parents instilled in us but, you know, Timmy, let me say something about that, because I agree 100 percent. And that Gen Z attitude, which is probably not even as bad as the Gen Y attitude. But I think where, where they got it was in the boomers who worked really hard and worked their whole lives, but stated that the purpose of work was to not have to do it anymore, to work to the point of getting to a 30-year vacation. Well, I'm not yeah. going to – share on air here Larry's age, but Larry's doing five days a week at Fox Business, one day a week on WABC after a second stint in the White House. And, you know, Larry's no spring chicken. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a a fried, I'm more of a fried chicken. I don't know about a spring chicken. (laughs) But that's that's why it's so frustrating for me, because look, I understand you want to work and then ultimately you do want to retire at some point, but between the between say twenty five and sixty five, it's about working and building and creating and and getting to that point. How are you going to do that when you're thirty five? If you want to work, you know, three days a week and only want to work four hours a day, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. E- I don't even remember sixty five. I'm still kicking. <laughs> I'm still going. It's all right. Uh, David Bonson, um, give us a word of wisdom on the stock market. Well, there's two things. The really good side is that earnings are positive. Uh, It's, you know, a recession is when earnings go negative. It's when jobs go negative. It's when wages go negative. So corporate profits are rising um, and stocks are doing well. And by the way, they're doing better democratically. You know, you had some of the Magnificent Seven names get hit pretty good this week. Google in particular got slammed. Facebook had the biggest up day in market history, but Apple was down, Microsoft was down. So some of the big leaders of 2023 are not doing well, but my beloved consumer staples are doing well. A lot of the the more value names, dividend growth names are doing well. So that's a good thing. What's the bad thing? Yeah, it's just valuations are still very high. That dependency on NVIDIA, the dependency on Meta, that's not good. The market is going to have to see more breadth. But ultimately, uh, the bears have gotten their faces ripped off. That's what's happened. And so I think you're now in a position where you you probably don't want to just be relying on Magnificent Seven. There are some uh, good opportunities out in the market. But the real compelling arguments to be negative are not on the table. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, so, Kenny, um, I'm just looking. Bond rates fell quite a bit. Tenure was off 12 basis points. This past week, 402. Yeah. 30-year um, was off 15 basis points. The short rates are flat. But the jobs report suggests there's not going to be any Fed rate cutting for quite a while, if at all. But the, bo- <laughs> but the bond market took it well, and the stock market took it well, which is interesting yeah, to me. So you and I have been in that camp that it was illogical to begin with to think that rates were going to come down, considering the str- how strong the economy was, what the economic data was, was, was revealing. And Friday's report just continues, to your point, to David's point, just continues to tell that same story. So I don't know how anybody can now imagine that March is still on the table or that May is on the table and maybe not even June. And at that point, 
what happens? Can the Fed really start to move rates in the summertime when we're within that six-month window of a presidential election? I'd like to think not because they shouldn't and they never did, but, you know, it's a new year, right? It's a new time. But I think, yes, the bond market did take it in stride. People were not uh, uh, were not running out of uh, out of equities at all. In fact, that the, the article that Bank America had, which showed big institutions last week selling selling record amounts of of, uh, of equities, because I think they were all planning for this report to be negative, and the market was going to back off, and they're going to reallocate that cash, and that's not what happened at all. Well, but Kenny, when you say you can't imagine anyone thinking rates are going to come down in May, the futures market has a hundred percent chance. I, I, I mean, in March is still showing 38%. Now, I, I don't think they're going to end up cutting in March. But the reason why they're going to cut in May is because yeah. it isn't true. It isn't true that jobs create inflation. It isn't true that economic growth is a negative thing. And what we're okay. getting right now is non-inflationary growth. That's the kind of thing the three of us are supposed to be happy about. We don't need a rate above the natural rate. No, no, but we still have the CPI at 3.8%. It's not anywhere near it But the CPI is not at 3.8. The CPI is not at 3.8. It's annualized right now at 2.6 over the last six months with a totally, I'll just say BS, shelter number. The CPI is assuming 7% inflation in rent when the market indicators are 0% soaking wet. And so I think the inflation rate has a two-handle now, and you have 0% goods inflation and outright deflation in in a handful of other goods and services. You know, David, um, you should send Jay Powell a copy of your new book. You know why? Because (laughs) the prevailing models at the Fed suggest that work is bad. Think about that. The Phillips curve, upon which consensus Left of center economics is based today, a trade-off between unemployment and inflation suggests that low unemployment, a.k.a. more people working, is a bad thing. So you need to send him a copy of your book to straighten out his thinking. Well, and what's interesting is I attended his lunch in New York in October, and he said – the Phillips curve model doesn't seem to be working anymore. And I was trying to figure out what kind of model works sometimes and doesn't work other times. And, and we would still call it a mathematical model. You know, math works all the time. The, and you're, you're right. But see, you've been right for 40 years on this. The Phillips curve was broken back when they were first heralding it, when you did get high unemployment and high inflation in the 1970s. And and so these coincident periods where sometimes there was this relationship held up between inflation and, and employment is just silly to believe it was causative. And yet you and I know why. Kenny knows why, right? We want people working because it produces more goods and services. And the production right. of goods and services is anti-inflationary. It's pro-growth. Tell that to the 5,000 economists at the Fed, 90% of whom, by the way, are registered Democrats. Just saying, just saying, just throwing a little something in there. Uh, It sounds like to me, though, uh, Kenny, that this will be a profits driven market now. I think it will be. It's going to be a profits driven market and it's going to be an AI driven market. Let's call it what it is. AI is very much in its infancy stages and there's a lot. There's a lot to look forward to. And I think that's going to be the driver as well. Is, you know, on that point, uh, Kevin Hassett talks a lot about that. Ed Yardeni talks a lot about that. 
Uh, Yardeni, one of the few people that actually got the story right last year, the so-called soft landing story. But um, productivity came out this past week. And um, non-farm productivity, four quarters, 2.7%. Big number, a very good number, Um, which led me to suggest that the increase in pay and wages in the recent job reports, including the report yesterday, people are earning their increases in pay because productivity output per hour is going up. 2.7% is an awfully good number. That's much better than the five- or ten-year average. I don't know if it's sustainable but my question to both of you is, does AI and the application of all the quantum computing kinds of uh, breakthroughs, will that uh, keep productivity growing at a rapid pace? Because if it is, then you'd expect lower inflation, stronger growth, and higher profits, and that's fabulous for stocks. What do you guys think? Right, but I think that is what the, to David's point, is your point, I think that's what the market's telling you. It's trying to look past what it thinks is, you know, by the broken mathematical models, and it's now focusing on uh, what the futures are going to look like. And I am in that camp that I do think while there'll be lots of adjustments with AI and some people are going to get, some people are going to lose and some people are going to win. But in the end, I think it's going to end up creating new and different jobs, and that's what's going to drive it. David, what do you think about this thesis? Yeah, you know, I listened to Kevin on your show this week, and I totally agree that there's going to be various catalysts that drive productivity. And he made an analogy on your show to the internet. And what I was thinking was how true it was Mm. that so much of digital computing added to productivity, but 95% of those NASDAQ companies still went away. All the Super Bowl commercial ads from 1999 still went bankrupt. (laughs) I still worry about the, uh, what we're going to see in terms of dead bodies out of AI when all is said and done, which companies are just a fraud that aren't going to make it, that are hyped up. And then there will end up being a few survivors. You know, people talk about the Internet as a big success because it's such a transformative thing in our lives. You look at the just thousands of percent return that Amazon and Google generated, and we forget about Pets.com and all those laughable Mm. companies from the late 90s. So I still think people want to be wary of jumping into the fad of AI investing and yet still recognize what Kevin's talk, what Kenny's talking about, that there is a productivity boom out there. And it isn't all just AI. It is really CapEx too. And this to me is a thing we're not talking enough about, that there is a lot of capital expenditures that we haven't seen coming back. I think a lot of the repatriation of foreign profits from the Trump tax cuts, I think the reduced corporate income tax rates, Mm. I think this instant expensing they're going to get back if this bill gets done Mm -hmm. on a CapEx. Mm. I think the the, uh, debt deduction, the interest deduction for corporate spending, I think the R&D deduction, these things are supply side. Yeah, I know. They're good. You know, Republicans have forgotten about tax cuts. I mean, I'm glad uh, uh, Jason Smith is not the head of the Ways and Means Committee, but the Wall Street Journal editorial page has just forgotten about their supply side roots. But I'm with you. I think it's a good bill. I know the child credit bill is not popular among conservatives, but it's not the worst thing in the world either. We had it in the Trump tax cuts. Not the worst thing in the world. There is a work requirement in there. Anyway, kids, let's uh, take a quick break. Dave Bonson of the Bonson Group, DividendCafe.com, and his new book, important book, full-time, Work and the Meaning of Life. 
Well, I'm going to send it to everybody in Washington. And Kenny Polcari, Case Capital Advisors, and Slate Stone Wealth. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. We're talking stocks. David Bonson of the Bonson Group in his new book, Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life, and Kenny Kenny Pocari of Case Capital Advisors and Slatestone Wealth. I got just tight for time, fellas. I need 30 seconds. Ken Pocari, best investment idea. Uh, I'm still in the AI camp, right? So I'm either in uh, I'm either in Apple, which I love, especially on this back off, or I like C3.ai, which is just AI as a symbol. Wow, good for you, David Bonson. Best investment idea: Midstream Energy. One of two things can happen: you get a pro energy president who wants new projects. You get growth out of that. We need more pipelines. We need to export LNG. Or you don't get a new president. And you don't get new projects because all the current midstream assets are even more valuable. So it's a very good hedge on the political dysfunction. And in the meantime, the opportunity is massive, huge dividends, midstream energy. I was just going to say, as a follow-up, you're still still the dividend stocks. Well, dividend growth is a way of life. It's like sobriety for me, Larry. It's going nowhere. (laughs) I haven't had you are right, David. Absolutely. We'll all go everywhere. Work hard, stay sober. It's a good uh, it's, it's very, very good. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. David Bonson and Kenny Pocari. I'm Kudlow. We're going to do some money in politics on the other side of the break with Liz Peak and John McIntyre of Real Clear Politics. I'm Kudlow. Stick around, folks. Helium Highlight Minute, sponsored by Desert Mountain Energy, an early mover among junior explorers in the helium space. Helium has become one of the most sought-after elements on Earth, yet is now in short supply. Desert Mountain Energy has positioned itself as a leader with the world's first solar-powered processing facility and over 100,000 acres within the U.S. Southwest, known to produce some of the world's richest helium. Many high-tech applications are totally dependent on helium. Helium, now a $6.5 billion market, is projected to grow sharply. Desert Mountain Energy, with its active development program, could play a vital role in meeting helium demand for years to come. It is time to look at helium and the crucial position of Desert Mountain Energy. This Helium Highlight Minute has been sponsored by Desert Mountain Energy, U.S. trading symbol DMEHF, and in Canada, DME. Web address, DesertMountainEnergy.com. The preceding make From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Uh, we're going to talk some money politics with our great friend Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist. Um, we have an APB out for John McIntyre, real clear politics, but whatever. We'll just talk to my pal Liz. Liz, uh, welcome back. So I'm looking at, very interesting, that John 
Cochran, distinguished academic economist, formerly Chicago, University of Chicago. He's been out at Hoover for quite a while. Uh, incompetent elites make Trump look appealing is the header. It's on the editorial page of the journal. But it, I, the way I summarize this, and this is what I want to talk about, it's like one reason that Trump has done so well is everything's broken. And you can go through the litany, like government's broken, the FBI's broken, the CIA's broken. The economic, you know, economic spending and borrowing is broken. Foreign policy's broken. The border's broken. Schools are broken. Censorship, the border, immigration, universities, it's all broken. Law and order is broken. I mean, everything's broken. There's a rumor that we got McIntyre. So John McIntyre, president and CEO of Real Clear Politics, he can jump in. I'm sure he's familiar with these. But, you know, Liz, I mean, and you could also not only summarize by saying everything's broken, but drain the swamp because a lot of this stuff originates in the swamp. Not all of it, to be sure. But, I mean, that's an important theme that is often overlooked. The system is broken. Now, whether Trump can rescue it remains to be seen, but he seems to be the preferred candidate to try. Well, I would say further, Larry, that just a few three short years ago, it wasn't broken. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the comparison is pretty stark, right? I mean, uh, look at the border is the obvious thing. Uh, Obviously, our relationship with Iran uh, and our position in the Middle East is, again, something that is very starkly different. I mean, I just looked at the numbers today, again, about oil exports out of Iran and foreign currency reserves. Trump squashed him. You helped him do it. I mean, there's no question that Iran was in very bad shape financially uh, and not a self-sustaining world power under Donald Trump. And now it is again. I mean, you can't you're not making that up. It's just the reality. And ditto with the border. I mean, Joe Biden talks about how I don't have give me the power to fix the border. A million people have come back and said, hey, you have that power. We saw it exercised when Donald Trump was in the Oval Office, find it and do what he did. And so, you know, I just think people are not we have short memories in our country, but they're not that short. And I think we all understand things were better on so many different levels uh, just a few short years ago. That doesn't mean under Trump that we didn't have woke universities. We did. We just didn't know how bad they were, probably. Mm. Uh, and yes, we began to borrow a lot of money. But here is my view on this money thing. Yeah, Trump spent some money because the economy had never been shut down before. We had to prop it up. But what should have looked like a pig going through a python now just looks like a fat python going on <laughs> forever, right? I like that, a fat python. You know, it's great fun. Um, with the yesterday's jobs numbers, first of all, I, I dared to say they were good numbers, no matter who the president is. They were good numbers. But here's the thing. If you're creating 350,000 jobs or whatever, you got a 3.5% unemployment rate or 3.7. Do you need, Liz, 8% of GDP deficits? Do you no. need $2 trillion deficits when you're virtually at full employment? Really? Yeah. In peacetime. Now, John McIntyre, former commodity trader and economic guru, 8% of GDP, $2 trillion uh, in deficits as far as the eye can see, and we're running a 3.7% unemployment rate. So I'd say the fiscal system's broken. Yeah, look, you're 100% right about that. And, and, and what 
what really bothers people, I mean, all that, that 8% of GDP and that spending is what's, is what's fueling inflation. And all, all the excess spending that, that the Biden administration did when they came, unnecessary spending. And, um, and, and that's what people, when they say they're upset about the economy, or they don't like their financial situation, it's, it, it's their cost of living, which has gone up so much over the last three years. And that's what, even though, even though the economic numbers are good, their everyday sort of costs and, and when, when, when families and people just look at their individual financial situations, they don't feel like they're as well off as they were four years ago. Mm. The affordability crisis, I call it. And it's not, yeah, yeah. not going to be solved by another good month of jobs. I was astonished, John, just for the heck of it. So that I, I, I said in the air, it was, it was a good number. I know there's a left-wing president I'd like to retire, but a good number is a good number. I mean, sometimes when you're a business host, you have to just like say, here's a fact. It's a good number. Everyone started jumping up and down about that. I was quite interested. That shows you our media is broken. Anyway, uh, Liz, I want to come back. You know, you mentioned the universities. Okay, so Harvard was probably broken and the other elite schools. We just didn't know that we were sending our kids to a socialist indoctrination camp until the last couple of years. In other words, the the uh, the uh, blooms off the rose, and now all of a sudden people are horrified at what they saw. That's another thing that's broken. Absolutely, and and that really didn't come to the public attention uh, until during Donald Trump's presidency, when. Uh, the universities just kind of decided, like the media did, that these were not normal times. This was not a normal president. And so any amount of uh, opposition was perfectly okay. And then, of course, with the Harvard, you know, with the uh, Israeli uh, conflict with the Palestinians and Hamas, it really kind of went through the roof. But this has been decades in the making, Larry. And our generation, frankly, has really overseen this, paid no attention. Uh, we've allowed this to metastasize. The studies have been out there showing that there is 80 uh, percent domination of liberal economists and liberal political science uh, professors and so forth. But no one really paid any attention because it didn't matter. Now I think it matters because we've seen young people actually oppose the values, traditions, and capitalism itself that have made our country great. That is unacceptable. And I think more and more families are looking at that and saying, this is a bad bargain. I don't want my kids to come out hating me because I've been successful enough to send them to a, a good school. And that's kind of where we are right now. And, John, the other part is uh, not only the universities, but um, COVID unmasked through Zoom what uh, the crazy teachers were teaching kids yep. in grade school and high school. And that caused a parental revolt. And that, in turn, triggered, um, you know, a weaponization of the Justice Department. I mean, it's, this is another thing that's broken. There's a nexus here of the what the DOJ did and the FBI and parents trying to go to what we used to call PTA meetings, school board meetings, to stop their kids from being completely indoctrinated into left-wing socialist and racist policies. Here's another thing broken, John. Yeah, 100%. And, 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 and the COVID and, and your point about the Zoom started to illuminate that, just like the this, this Israel-Hamas thing kind of illuminated it. And part of what happened is that during the Trump years, because everything 
for many was justified in an attempt to get rid of Donald Trump, people didn't realize just how far left and how far radical so many of these schools moved. Mm. And, and, and they saw it during COVID when parents were aware of like suddenly, oh, what are my kids learning? What are they being taught? This Israel Hamas, you know, Hamas situation that blew up in October where people are like, like what, what's actually going on on these elite college campuses? And, 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 and some of that was kind of hidden during the Trump years with just the obsession in the media with everything Trump and, and, and anything in the furtherance of getting rid of Donald Trump was, was quote unquote acceptable. The other thing that's broken is the border, which may wind up being the biggest issue in the campaign. I mean, Liz, the boy, and there are laws. We were talking about this with Chad Wolf, former DHS secretary, and also Rick Scott, Senator Rick Scott. You know, President Biden says, you know, give me the resources. Stop it. He's got he's he's got congressional laws uh, and he's got plenty of money and he could have stopped it if he wanted to stop it. But he didn't want to stop it. So the border's broken, too. And now that the border breaking has spilled over into incredible lawlessness in the cities and suburbs, that, too, is broken. Yeah, and I saw Elon Musk come out, I think he recently, with a comment that this is totally intentional on the part of Democrats. They are hoping hoping to usher in millions of people who will ultimately become Democratic voters. And I think that's totally true. But it is, you know, that the Democrats are a little too smart for their own good, um, Larry, because they have worked very hard Uh, we are told, to make sure that Donald Trump is the nominee. They feel that Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump. Uh, And yet they've also ginned up the three issues that probably are the most potent for Donald Trump. Iran, mm. the the border, and the economy, mm. and and in the terms of the border, that has reached fever pitch because the numbers are just out. They're staggering. I mean, I think when December went over three hundred thousand, and people kind of did the math in their in their head and said, "Wait a minute, this is like three to four million people per year." Mm. That you know, the twenty six states have populations or something like that. How can anyone possibly think this is okay? And now we have the trickle-down effect, if you will, of fentanyl. I think the deaths last year, 126,000. We have blue cities in really big trouble because they're sanctuary cities. They have crime run amok. And that video the other day, I saw that. We all did a a week ago today. And I said, holy crow, surely that is going to get some attention. The New York City, uh, the New New York York City City with the cops being kicked and pummeled by illegals who have now fled Mm. uh, New York, presumably en route to California. Uh, You know, I think I think everyone was horrified by that, out and on, rightly so. Out on, out on no bail. Out on no yeah, bail. Yeah. Alvin Bragg strikes again or whoever it was. Uh, yeah, that's uh, – you know, John McIntyre, though, the Democrats should be careful what they wish for because Trump's got a shot at carrying the Hispanic vote this year. Totally. And, and I mean, that, that was one of the under – you know, it's kind of underreported stories during the entire – Trump presidency is that in in 2020, Donald Trump got more non-white votes mm. than, than than any Republican president in, in, in you know modern history, and particularly uh, uh, among in, in the in the working class Hispanic community, um, 
you know, because in a lot of that is that they just actually see it in their everyday lives and their jobs and their opportunities and, and what, what they had four years ago versus now. And I think, you know, one of the things with the, with the border thing that people see is, is that they see that like, you know, Trump put in some very specific policies that actually started to have a real world effect on curtailing the flow across the border, the remain in Mexico mm-hmm. and a whole host of things that Joe Biden made a very deliberate in public, uh, you know, flourish on his first day in office of changing. Mm. So it's like what we have on the border, this is not an accident. This is a result of deliberate policy changes by the current administration from an administration before that had proactively taken steps that were having a real world effect in a positive direction. And I think that, you know, the media may try to like obfuscate or cover that up, but people, it's gotten so bad now that like people are aware of that, 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 you know, policies matter and the election consequences matter. Well, I think that, I think that, um, you know, the, the border, the, the broken border might've been a theory if you lived uh, in the yeah. rest of the country, you know, right. away from the border. But the lawlessness and the drug addiction that came with the broken border has now become a reality. And this really, uh, big, I got to take a quick break. Uh, Liz Peaks, a Fox News contributor and uh, syndicated columnist, John McIntyre is the president and CEO and founder of Real Clear Politics. Uh, boy, everybody's tuning into that. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with some more money in politics. Larry Kudlow from Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking money in politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and John McIntyre, president and CEO of Real Clear Politics and Real Clear Media. Liz Peake, um, former Wall Streeter. Actually, all three of us are former Wall Streeters, one kind or another. Uh, I'm going to argue that Elon Musk is worth every penny of the $56 billion bonus that the Delaware court took away from him. Every penny of the $56 billion. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I yeah. agree 100 yeah. percent. And guess what? All, everything he has is in his businesses. If they do well, so should he. What business is it of a court to determine that someone's pay or comp or windfall is too much, Larry? I don't get that at all. See, that's the thing. That's the total key point, John McIntyre. If the courts start telling companies who to pay, how to pay, then the next thing is going to go what to produce, what not to produce, which is what the climate change people want anyway. You got a real problem. That's the end of free market capitalism. That's the end of the economy. That's the end of America. That's the real point here, John McIntyre. No, look, totally. And there's a there's a great clip floating around that I saw on X, you know, which is now owned by Elon Musk of, I think, Aaron Ross Sorkin, maybe out at, in, in, in summit at one of these conferences six years ago when the news broke of Elon's compensation deal. And it was sort of being mocked and ridiculed as if it was just an outrageous price that that Tesla could even ever get to that price. And it was yeah. crazy. And, and, <laughs> and, and they were sort of like, this is you look, look at this, you know, pie in the sky, ridiculous valuation they think Tesla is going to get to. And, 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 and of course, if it didn't get to a lot of those metrics, 
his compensation was going to be nothing. Mm-hmm. And so he, he, he it achieved something that no one really at the time thought was possible. Okay. And, and obviously the owners and the people who were invested in Tesla are wildly happy with, with his direction and performance. And the other consequence of this is, and you see this in bad policies in these states. I mean, Delaware for so many years has had corporations and people that would, you know, set up their businesses there and corporations are going to start to move out. They're going to react to this. They don't want to be, they they don't want to be part of a, of a state government structure that, that that's going to do crazy things like that, that tear down at the fundamentals of capitalism. So he's going to move the Tesla to Texas. That's what he said. Yeah. He's going to reincorporate it in Texas where apparently they like businesses down in Texas. Oh, wait a minute. One of the fastest growing states in the country. Oh, wait a minute. Delaware. Delaware used to be the home of corporations. Now it's basically the home of Joe Biden. Not good. What a trade. What a I'm going to say, boy, there's a bad trade. If there ever was one, I know. That's terrific. John McIntyre, tell me, give us a little wisdom about the South Carolina. I guess when's the Nevada caucus? Is that coming up? I've lost track. Yeah, the Nevada caucus is Thursday. Thursday. It's interesting. There's a there's a primary and a caucus. The caucus is what actually counts mm. in and and what you get delegates for. And it's interesting. Nikki Haley's not even participating in the caucus. Mm. So that's that's another little tell. Like, I mean, if if you were you legitimately kind of had a chance for the nomination, you wouldn't be just ignoring uh, contests in, in battleground states where delegates are are, are going to be at. So she's not on the ballot there. Trump's going to Trump's going to win that by default. What's the prognostication for South Carolina? Yeah, I mean, look, Trump's over 50 percent. The latest poll had him 58, 32. So up 25 plus points. Uh, he's he's been re- regularly running that type of lead, and it's it's a winner take all state. And even more importantly, um, you know, I mean, it's I think it's going to say it, it's going to it's problematic for Nikki Haley to 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 lose the state and perhaps lose it badly that she was the governor of. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you know, we'll we'll see. But but Trump's Trump's going to you know overwhelmingly likely. Win that, take all the delegates. Uh, maybe it goes through to Super Tuesday, but I would, I would have a hard time seeing it go past that. After he wins, assuming he wins, and after he wins South Carolina, and Liz, you're going to like this thought. He's going to work. He will then move 100 percent to unify the Republican Party. That would be great. Yeah, we, I mean, he's got the majority of the Republican Party already. Uh, in, in polling shows. I think what he has to do next is start reaching beyond the Republican Party and drawing in independence, whether that's through his VP pick or mm-hmm. – look, he hasn't really been out there campaigning very much. I mean, uh, you know, the court cases have kind of gotten him uh, spending an awful lot of time in courtrooms. Yeah. And I'm hoping with this delay of the Jack Smith one and possible delay of the Fonnie Winnells one and so forth, yep. maybe he's going to get a little more time to actually go drum up support because at some he point he needs to be doing that full He time. will. He will. we got to yeah. jump. Liz Peak, thank you. John McIntyre, as always, thanks, thanks to both Harry. of you. Folks, I'm Kudlow. Great fun today. We will be back next weekend.
listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Anthony Weiner, The Middle Unplugged. It's my honor to introduce a friend, Jerry Goldfeder. Welcome. Good to see you again. You are perhaps the nation's foremost expert on election law. You've been doing this for about 40 years. You also run the Fordham Law School Voting Rights and Democracy Program. And I'm grateful to have you to explain some of these issues. Give us a briefing on what exactly it looks like if someone wants to remove a president, for now, against their will. So it's actually pretty simple. 25th Amendment of the Constitution says, if the vice president and majority of the cabinet believe that the president is not fit for office, they can vote to remove him temporarily and have the vice president be the acting president for the time being. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. This is New York's talk leader, the crown jewel of talk radio. WABC New York and 1071 WLIR Hampton Bays. 77 WABC News starts now. 41 degrees, skies are clear on this Saturday, February.